Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another lovely Sunday episode. Today is episode number 18, and I personally am very proud of this case. I think I did a very good job. Hopefully, you agree, but it's a very just, it's a very heartbreaking case for sure, but it is also just a very heartwarming case at the same time. I'm gonna cry. Just to see, like, a community of people work together in the way that they did in this scenario was just very beautiful to watch and research, so I am very excited to cover this case. I don't think that I have any other announcements other than go like the post on either my Instagram or my Facebook about the Halloween episodes. Enter itself in a drawing to get a cool spooky basket. I did the spooky basket. I got it all together. So excited to give it to somebody. I think it is really cute, super fun. It's going to be very interesting to ship. I haven't decided how I'm going to do that yet, but I think you'll enjoy it, whoever gets it. Hopefully, I would enjoy it if I got it. So hopefully you will. I don't know. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. But uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I hope y'all are ready for the Halloween episodes coming in a couple, like a week and a half. I'm excited. So excited. So yeah, let's get into this true crime case that I am very proud of and very excited to share. All right, let's do it. Seattle, Washington in the 90s was shaped around the iconic grunge scene. There were many punk rock bands blossoming from the city's punk rock scene and making it big. Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, just to name a few. It was booming, and this punk rock grunge scene really put Seattle on the map. Not only were these well-known bands really taking this country by storm, but there were also smaller bands climbing up the ladder as well. And one of these bands was the Gits, who were just getting home from a three-week tour that was actually very successful. And this is kind of where this case starts to unfold. Mia Catherine Zapata was born on August 25th, 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. Mia was a very intelligent person, and she had this natural talent when it came to music. Mia knew how to play both the piano and the guitar by nine years old. I've so badly always wanted to be a musical prodigy like Mia, but your girl is just honestly not coordinated enough to play an instrument, (laughs) which is just very sad, but it is the hard truth. Not only was she musically talented, but Mia was just also an artist in all forms. She loved to express herself through her art. It is also reported that her family could have actually been a distant relative to Emiliano Zapata, who was actually a major part of the Mexican Revolution. In 1984, Mia began attending Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. This was a liberal arts school, and they believed in letting the students essentially create their own education. It is a very creative school where you can go to really be your true, authentic, artistic self. It truly seemed like a place that Mia would thrive in, which she did. It is here that Mia met Andrew or Andy Kessler, Matt Dresder, and Steve 
Moriarty, and the four of them became good friends. Eventually, they all decided to start a punk rock band. Mia would be the lead singer, Andy on guitar, Matt on bass, and Steve on drums. They called this band initially Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits, but they later changed it to The Gits. Both of these names actually came from an episode of Monty Python, which is actually just kind of funny. They performed many shows at Antioch, and these were described as amazing and unmatched. In 1989, the band packs things up and they head to Seattle, Washington, where the punk rock scene was thriving, and they could really get their feet on the ground and hit it running. Here in Seattle, the Gits really were doing very well. They were known for their fiery live performances, and they fit in so perfectly in the grunge era. They were often performing with their good friends, Seven Year Bitch, and Mia actually played a huge part in making this Seven Year Bitch band. She actually convinced them to get the band together and help them continuously throughout the process of making their sound. During this time, Mia worked as a waitress at the Frontier Room, which is a local dive bar, and her and the bandmates moved into it an abandoned home on 19th Street and Denny Avenue in the Capitol Hill District of Seattle. It is here that the band lived, rehearsed, performed, and obviously they partied as well. The four of them actually called this home the Rat House. Here at the Rat House, the Gits found their sound. With Mia spending all of her free time jotting down lyrics in a little journal to Andy, Matt, and Steve creating the beat. The Gits' first big debut was at the Vogue, and they had to bribe this worker with a dollar just to get a spot to perform. And people actually really started to see how genuinely talented this band was. They brought something new and amazing to the punk rock scene. People describe Mia's singing as intense, soulful, and raw. The Gits quickly gained a large following, especially Mia. She had this way about her that everyone loved. In June of 1993, really big things were happening for the Gits. Atlantic Records had just made an offer to sign them, Mia had just played a solo show in LA, and they had just released a CD. And they were also about to go on a full-on US tour and share their music with the whole country. All good things were happening for them, and it was said that Mia had just honestly never been happier. On July 6, 1993, Mia, Andy, Matt, and Steve are all out partying and celebrating their return from their successful tour like we had talked about earlier. Not only this, but their future and climbing up the ladder of the music industry. They are out with friends just having a wonderful time together. All of them are hanging out at the Comet Tavern in Seattle. The Comet Tavern is a local cozy Seattle bar located in the Capitol Hill area. They have live rock bands performing, they have games, and like most good bars, they have cold beer. It definitely seems like the type of place that I too would spend a night out celebrating with friends. Obviously, they weren't going to end this night early, so the friends partied until the bar closed at 2 a.m. Mia leaves the Comet Tavern, stating that she is going to get a cab and head home. This would be the last time that Mia Zapata was seen alive. Around 3.30 a.m. on July 7th, 1993, just hours after she had left the tavern, Mia Zapata was found in the street. 
brutally beaten, trigger warning, raped, and murdered by strangulation. She was found in the central district of Seattle, Washington, by a woman walking in the street. This woman saw her and immediately ran across the street to a fire station and told them what she had seen. Mia had been laying lifeless in the street with her right leg over her left leg and her sweatshirt hood was pulled down over her head. Investigators also noted that there were ligature marks around her neck. There were scuff marks on the toe portion of her shoes, and she had another scuff mark on her left side around her hip area, and that was on her clothes. But under her belt line of her pants, her physical hip was also scuffed up. In her pockets, investigators located her bra and underwear, which indicated to them that Mia had sadly been trigger warning, raped as well. There were random pieces of metal scattered around her body and there was also one tire mark left behind. And this was 13 inches in length and it was located around her head. There were also really no signs on scene that brought up the idea that a struggle had ensued there at the site of the body. And so it was believed that she had been dumped there and the perpetrator basically sped off, leaving behind the tire mark, tire mark sorry, that was located near her head. When Mia was initially found, her identity was unknown, but she was later identified through a chicken tattoo that was on her leg. She was just 27 at the time of her death, and this makes me a part of the infamous 27 Club when it comes to musical artists, which is honestly just genuinely so sad. She was so talented and not, like, she just did not deserve this at all. <sighs> just watching videos and stuff of her really just made me want to cry. Sorry, because she just seems like such a good person. She just did not deserve to be put through what she did and it was just it's all very sad. Mia's father describes her wake as absolutely unbelievable because of the sheer amount of people who came out and supported Mia and her family. He goes on to describe how Mia when she was in the casket there were tons of different items around her head and shoulders from those who loved her. Just a beautiful thing to witness the true impact that Mia Zapata had on the world. There was even another wake held by her friends and fans. Posters and flyers for this covered the town of Seattle, Washington. The admission to the wake only required one yellow rose. Not only did her death affect her family and her friends, but the punk rock scene as a whole was deeply affected by the loss of Mia Zapata. She was just on the precipice of the whole country seeing what she could do, and it is absolutely heartbreaking and just so senseless that it was ripped away from her. As we talked about earlier, Mia hung out at the Comet Tavern until about 2 a.m. on July 7th, 1993, before heading home. She was found at 3.30 a.m., and this is about an 80-minute window of just unknown. At this time in the case, the window of persons of interest is huge. From her very large friend group to any of her fans or even people that specifically enjoyed her and her talents. It was reported that she had kind of like a small group of people that, you know, like followed her around to all of her shows. All of Mia's friends were being brought in for questioning and samples, and many of them speak about how you really just didn't even know who to trust at this time. Could it be the person you constantly see at the bar or the person that you constantly see at these little concerts and pop-up shows? Like, 
who is it? Who killed Mia Zapata, this so loved, so very just talented person who is just on the precipice of greatness? Two weeks after the murder occurred, Mia's band members hired a private investigator, and they paid for this by reaching out to all of the other artists and bands in the punk rock scene. These artists and bands would play benefit shows where all of these proceeds would go towards funding the private investigator. They did not feel like the authorities were really doing enough to solve Mia's case, so they felt inclined to get it figured out themselves. Joan Jett specifically felt really inclined to help in this situation. So she got together with the remaining members of the Gits and they created their own band of sorts. They called this Evil Stig, which was Gits Live Backwards. So that's pretty cool. They played the Gits songs and obviously they did this to gain proceeds for the private investigator. The Posies, Nirvana, the President of the United States, Soundgarden, and many, many more also performed to get these proceeds for a private investigator. They were able to raise about $50,000, which is just so heartwarming. A huge group of people who loved this amazing artist gathering up the funds to help solve her case. It's very touching. Seven Year Bitch also performed, or sorry, not performed, produced a song called M.I.A. in tribute to Mia Zapata and titled their 1994 album Viva Zapata. Home Alive was also established, which was a self-defense program that Mia's friends coordinated, and it taught women how to be safe when they were out and about during the night, going to these concerts, going to these bars, pop-up shows, all of the things, and it taught them how to kick some ass, which is so cool. I love that. I love that they bonded together, and they really did what they believed Mia really would have wanted them to do it could have helped her in that time. The private investigator that the Gids hired was Lee Heron, and Lee states that her first battle was trying to get to know everyone surrounding the case, talking about how everyone becomes a best friend of the victim, so it makes a pool of potential suspects quite large. Lee had spent nights on nights driving around, going to clubs and bars, and just trying to get any information that she could about Mia or her case. Lee gets word from some friends of Mia's that she had just recently met a new friend, and this supposed friend was seen later after the murder yelling, the bitch is dead, the bitch is dead, why did I do it? So that's incriminating if you ask me. But this man was eventually identified and questioned by Lee, and she informed the authorities about this possible suspect, and he was polygraph test and passed, so they kind of just let him go. Lee also uncovered a internet romance of sorts that Mia started shortly before her murder, and this man started putting comments out about how He would do the same to someone else that he did to Mia Zapata, so also very incriminating. This man would also sit and watch children in his car outside of the playground, and all of this information that was gathered was handed over to the authorities, and Lee goes on to talk about how this man had in fact dated Mia before, and he would frequently attend her concerts, and was for the most part just completely obsessed with her. He had a very stalkerish 
kind of personality and he had like those tendencies and he gave Lee an uneasy feeling and she really thought like he could have been the one and so she decided to have a conversation with this man and she let him know that she like who she was and that she knew that he was a cab driver that night and that he was driving specifically on the evening of July 6, 1993 And she states that he did not confess to killing Mia, but confessed to her that he, like, had this drug problem and he broke down crying. After all of this, there was just really no evidence to tie this man to Mia Zapata. So, eventually as well, this guy is just kind of cleared. And that's that. They just can't tie him to the crime. It's over. The man eventually, however, does actually run out of funds for Lee, so they have to stop the investigation and rely solely on the authorities to solve this case. However, Mia Zapata's case would go unsolved for a decade, and this absolutely broke the hearts of all of her prior bandmates, her loved ones, her friends, and her followers. Because why would it not break their hearts? She deserves justice. Eventually, the Seattle cold case unit picked up Mia's case and decided to delve back into it. And immediately, investigators take these swabs that were preserved as evidence from Mia's case and they have them tested for DNA. At this point, DNA testing had become more advanced, so they were pretty confident that they could get something from these swabs. A DNA analyzer tested these swabs taken from Mia's body. And these swabs were actually taken from a bite mark that was found on the body of Mia Zapata. They were looking for some sort of saliva that they just really needed to get so that they could use that to get DNA. That wasn't just Mia's because it was coming from Mia's body. Luckily, they did get a hit after removing Mia's DNA from the mix. They were able to find a single strand of male DNA. They submitted the DNA profile to CODIS and this yielded nothing, which is just a huge disappointment. This was most likely the DNA profile of Mia's killer and there is just no information of them in CODIS. It's so frustrating. So they decide to search this database weekly just to see if the DNA ever hits. Eventually in 2003, there is a hit and it is for a male in Florida who was a convicted felon. This man was Jesus Mesquita. So now let's talk about some known facts about Jesus Mesquita. So Jesus was proven to have been in Seattle the night of Mia's murder. Jesus had a vehicle, which meant that he was mobile at the time, and as we remember, there was a tire mark that was left right near Mia's body, right around her head. He also lived in the area where Mia's body was found, and he was an active suspect in an incident that involved exposing someone, and this was just right down the street from Comet Tavern, where Mia had been the night of her murder. Jesus Mesquita had been previously arrested for a number of different violent attacks, battery, assault of a spouse, and robbery. This seems to be painting a very grim photo. So why was his saliva on Mia's body? 
Authorities went to Florida in an attempt to find Jesus, but they had no luck. Jesus Mosquita's wife, however, told the authorities that Jesus had fled to Miami when he got the word that authorities were on to him. Eventually, authorities were able to track down Jesus' vehicle in Florida, and then that led to the capture of Jesus himself. They finally had Mia's killer in custody after all of these years. Jesus Mosquito was described as a terrifying, huge man. He was very scary and very cold, and everyone just felt so sick knowing that this is who Mia was encountering in the last moments of her life. It was very clear almost immediately that this genuinely was just an act of pure evil and it was random and he had no connection to Mia Zapata. The medical examiner was able to actually tie all of the evidence found on Mia's body to almost a certain time. They were all found to be contemporaneous, so this proves without a doubt that Jesus Mosquito was the one to deposit that saliva onto Mia at the time of her murder, while Mia was also being trigger warning, raped and strangled. So it all happened at the same time and it's scientifically proven. On March 25th, 2004, the jury found Jesus Mesquita guilty of felony murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to 36 years in prison. This is actually 10 years longer than the longest sentence due to this just horrific nature of his crime. Mia Zapata's case was the first case to be solved using saliva DNA in the state of Washington. Mia's father states that just hearing the jury announce his verdict was satisfactory enough for him. Mia finally got the justice that she deserved. Jesus Mesquita did die on January 21st, 2021 before he was able to carry out his whole sentencing. He was 66 years old. This is the heartbreaking case of Mia Zapata. Thank you so much for listening. All right, you guys. So that brings our Sunday case to a close. I hope that you enjoyed it. I personally really enjoyed researching this case. It was very fascinating to just watch Mia Zapata as an artist. She was very talented. I like seriously want to cry. I would have been friends with her. She seems so cool. But anyways, I digress. Um, I hope that I did her case justice. I'm sorry if you hear all of I cannot get her to chill out, but yeah, I think that's about it. Please, 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 please go comment on the post, like the post, make sure you're following Instagram or Facebook, and you will get possibly a cool spooky basket from me, okay? I want to give you a spooky basket, so please go comment your favorite Halloween movie and like and follow, please. I want to be cool and give you a spooky basket okay okay anyways let me give you my socials all right you guys so you know the drill email the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com the website the not so grateful dead dot podbean dot com instagram the not so grateful dead underscore podcast tiktok the not so grateful dead pod and facebook the not so grateful dead podcast with grayson decker I hope you all have a lovely week. I am so excited for episode 20. It's coming up very quickly. We have one more episode and then it's episode 20. 
my most interesting case I feel like is going to be episode 20. It's my most favorite, interesting, intriguing serial killer. So I'm excited. Hope you're excited. Anyways, have a lovely week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I will see you on Wednesday. Bye-bye.